Welcome to Supreme Bench Warmers, your best podcast for somewhat sound legal analysis. I'm Tori. And I'm Michelle. And we are the Supreme Bench Warmers. It, pretty much the greatest political analysis uh, you'll hear. Yeah, so let's just give a little bit of introduction about what we're trying to do here, and then we'll just move into the issues. Yeah, why did we decide to do this podcast, Michelle? <laughs> okay, so both of us are lawyers. We both went to law school together. We're also best friends. The bestest in the world. The bestest of friends. And um, we're hilarious. So, based on that, we wanted to go ahead and do a podcast where we're um, really exploring legal issues, relevant legal issues of the day, in a way that people that aren't lawyers will understand and care about. So basically, we're going to force you to care about legal issues. Yes. Which I know sound boring, but we'll do our best to make it lively and fun. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to try and simplify legal issues. So um, if you want a more thorough legal analysis, we'll, of course, include links on our website so you can get more in depth. But we just want to give you an overview of what the issues are, why you should care, um, things like that. we really love hearing ourselves talk. That's also a plus. I know. I love the sound of your voice. It's beautiful. (laughs) I love the sound of yours. This works out. (laughs) Okay, so what are we talking about today? We have two two issues to cover. The first is Merrick Garland, who is Obama's Supreme Court nominee. And the second one, we're going to be talking a lot about DAPA, um, which is the Immigration Reform Act that just went up to the Supreme Court in June. Um, so those are the two areas that we're going to touch on. And we're also going to end on a lighter note. We're going to try to do that with every episode, which is a fun fact about a justice or a funny case that's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, just because not everything in the law is completely gloomy. Some Mm -hmm. of it's a little bit fun, right? Yeah. (laughs) At least that's what we tell ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) And more importantly, we're trying to center most of our legal analysis, not so much on, um, more of the political climate today, but more basically on the Supreme Court and what cases are going up, um, how the law is changing based on them, and we really enjoy the justices, so we're going to be talking a lot about them. We do really love the justices, (laughs) especially Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who should be our best friend. She is awesome. If you hear this, can you contact us and just like... We really love you. We'd really like to take you out on Friday night. You want to be on our podcast? We would love to have you on our podcast. (laughs) That should be our first guest. Yes, yes, we should. (laughs) Anyway, all right, so I guess we'll just dive into our first issue of the day, which is Merrick Garland and... Where is he? What's he doing? (laughs) Um, So most people know at this point that Justice Scalia unfortunately passed away in February of this year, um, which we have nothing but respect for Justice Scalia. Yes, he was a powerhouse. Which is kind of funny. I think some people didn't expect that from us because we're a little bit left on the spectrum, I Mm -hmm. would say. Um, But, you know, it's very rare that you have anyone on the court with that good, that incredible legal mind Mm -hmm. and he is really going to be missed i i mean really changed the entire way that um the supreme court functioned and passed down opinions and he was just an incredible human being because no matter he would argue it in a way that broke it down to where you could understand it Mm -hmm. but also like it would make you argue better because you know he's just it's just rare to have that combination and i mean in plus his friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg was so adorable. It was adorable. That was super cute. Oh <laughs> my gosh. That. I'm going to miss seeing them at the opera together. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, rest in peace, Scalia. Um, nothing but respect. But when he died within hours, and you think that I'm exaggerating when I say within hours. No, within literally a couple hours of his death, certain senators 
let's just for simplicity purposes call them Republicans. <laughs> um, they started coming out and saying that no matter who Obama nominated for Supreme Court, they were going to block somehow, some way. Um, which this is unheard of. That's never happened. Um, and it's not really the way that Congress is supposed to function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that in itself was we- a lot of these senators were making was that um, the American people should have a voice in the next person who's elected onto the Supreme Court. That in itself wasn't great logic for me because the American people already elected Obama for four years. They didn't elect him for three And plenty of justices in the past, six actually to be exact, have been nominated and confirmed during election years. So I didn't think that was a great point, um, but, you know, it gets a lot messier from here. My favorite quote from this time was actually came from Senator Hatch, which, honestly, normally I love Hatch. He's (laughs) one of my favorite Republican senators. Uh, I'm a really big fan of RIFRA, actually, on the federal level, um, and he's the guy who passed that. Uh, Anyway, back to the point. So... Senator Hatch literally said if Obama was going to nominate someone like Merrick Garland, then of course the Senate would confirm that nomination. But Obama would never do something that rational. (laughs) Well, turns out joke's on you, Hatch, because Obama is that rational. um, Because he did, in fact, elect or nominate Merrick Garland. So now everyone's happy, right? You would think that. Yeah, (laughs) everyone's happy. They elected who they wanted to. And they must have confirmed him by now, and now we have a new Supreme Court justice. And it's all a happy ending. It's just a happy ending. Well, then this wouldn't be a very good podcast, though. (laughs) It's like everything went smoothly. (laughs) Uh, No, they did not. They did not uh, confirm him. Uh, First, we're going to get into like the background of who Merrick Garland is, and then it'll become more clear about why it's so insane that they haven't confirmed him yet. So Merrick Garland is from the D.C. District Court. If um, Justice Scalia is a steak and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a lobster, I would say that Merrick Garland is a ham sandwich. (laughs) Like, no one hates a ham sandwich, but no one really loves it. (laughs) Like, nobody goes out of their way and, like, craves it and talks about how great ham sandwiches are. Um, at least very few people. I don't know. Maybe it's some cup of tea, but no. Um, most of Merrick Garland's legal arguments are pretty damn boring. <laughs> and it, it's not even like that he's a boring judge. The circuit that he comes from is just inherently boring. It deals with mostly like administrative laws and executive orders and like government regulations. So basically, he's just never had a chance to really um, see or adjudicate a really controversial legal issue. No, and it's interesting because when you look at judges from places like the Fifth Circuit or the Ninth Circuit, because the Fifth Circuit is just like as red as you can go, the Ninth Circuit is as blue as you can go, and so from the lawmakers in that area come out with like batshit crazy cases, mm-hmm. like or batshit crazy laws, to where like, you know, it, it, they're crazy and these judges have to adjudicate them and post these, like, crazy controversial opinions. Mm-hmm. And so they become controversial judges. So actually the reason I think Merrick Garland's going to be the fourth, if, I mean, if he was ever confirmed, he probably won't be confirmed. But if he was, that would put four justices on the court that are from the D.C. Circuit. And the reason for that isn't even that they're, like, politically connected or the D.C. Circuit's better. It's because they're not controversial. Mm. Um And so you might be wondering, what do we know about Merrick Garland? Um, Not a lot. (laughs) We know that he is very uh, hard on criminals. Mm -hmm. He's very pro-government whenever there's a decision that's the DOJ against um, 
somebody's civil rights, he'll almost always side with the DOJ. Mm. Part of that is because he did used to work at the DOJ. Um, and he actually, he was lead on the Oklahoma City bombing case. Oh, interesting. Yeah, isn't that? I thought, yes. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That's how he got a lot of his fame. I would say his most controversial case was um, he actually passed a law, or he actually um, put out an opinion that said Guantanamo's inmates' genitals were allowed to be prodded. He stated that that was constitutional. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Personally, I feel much safer after that law. <laughs> That that sarcasm. I that's think. that's surprising though that Obama would pick someone who has only had one really controversial case and it's been very pro Guantanamo and pro torture. I, I mean, like honestly, like apparently that's what it takes to be like a moderate in modern day America, <laughs> which is crazy to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, do, I don't know, it doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Um, so has he out, even had any um, left wing? <laughs> that's the thing is like cases which I find really 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 funny is that all these like really like left-wing organizations Mm -hmm. especially like reproductive rights organizations have like just gone like out of their way and like Mm -hmm. formed non-profits and just like aligned with him like 100 percent which is like kind of like you're putting like you know like the horse before or wait the cart the horse before the cart the cart before the it doesn't sound right the cart before the horse no you're putting the horse before the cart because that's the wrong order of things wait the horse goes in front of the cart exactly so you're putting the horse before the cart the cart before the horse but that's how it's supposed to go (laughs) fine okay we're lawyers guys (laughs) we're so smart okay anyway but because my point of this is we don't actually know what Merrick Garland believes on abortion right (laughs) because like he's never had a pro-choice opinion Mm -hmm. he's never even like some of his closest friends say that he will not state how he feels about abortion Mm. which is really interesting just because in the past obama has chosen very very Mm pro-choice very pro-choice um justices so i think just from there we can assume that he's probably pro-choice right i don't know um but that it's it just seems like a big a lot of weight has been thrown behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this th- guy doesn't even sound like someone who would want to be appointed as justice. That's actually an interesting point because some people have a theory that he knew that he wasn't going to be appointed as justice because oh. it's such a hard political climate. Um, it's in Obama's last year. You know, he's a little bit older. He's kind of a unique choice. Some people, you know, it, I've heard some theories about that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, a- another thing that I find interesting is the NRA is very against Merrick Garland because of his alleged very strong stances on gun control. Um, we don't actually know where he stands on gun control. He vote. It's kind of a complicated legal proceeding. He mm-hmm. voted that he wanted to vote on a case for gun control. Mm-hmm. He didn't write an opinion. Um, he didn't come out and make a statement. He hasn't actually taken a hard stance on gun control, so we don't know where he lies on that spectrum. Interesting. We can assume he's probably pro-gun regulation, but we don't know. Um, so then why did Obama nominate Garland? This is actually my favorite part of this bit because this is all my personal theory. Um, not a lot of people have come out and said this, and, like, most people disagree with me on this. Mm -hmm. I think it was a fuck you to Congress. Like... I know that sounds crazy, but I think that this came out making Obama look very rational. Mm -hmm. It makes, like, most members of Congress look a little stupid. And um, if he can point to this and say, look how broken Washington is, 
I nominated the super moderate guy that Senator Hatch himself said that they would confirm, mm -hmm. and even he has come out now against him. Right. So, I mean, that's my theory. I think um, if Obama was going to go with somebody, he probably, his first choices would have been either Loretta Lynch or Sri Srinivasan, mm -hmm. because um, they're both younger, they have a lot more time on the court, they're both very, very notoriously liberal, Um and, like, Garland is just a very moderate choice for Obama. He's chosen very liberal judges so far. It seemed like it might have been strategic as well because he knew that no matter who he chose, Congress was going to put up a fight. Mm -hmm. So he kind of was like, okay, I'll let them choose. And he was like, okay, if this is who you say will go through, then I'll take it over getting no one through. Because it is his last year. Mm -hmm. And he knew he only had a year to get this confirmed. Right. And he, I think he, like, wanted to get the court balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, and it wasn't, you know, a liberal justice who died. Mm -hmm. Scalia was a very conservative court. So it's like, it wasn't like he was replacing one of like the great liberal forces. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's also an interesting like component to this, but anyway, so you might be wondering what is happening in this case? Because like, I feel like initially you hear a lot about Merrick Garland. There was like mm -hmm. this like, media explosion and then he kind of faded into the background. So short answer is Nothing. Nothing is happening in this case. Which is crazy. How long ago was he nominated? Over 200 days now. That's insane. Yeah, it is Because that's the longest insane. for any justice to be waiting for this, right? It is super weird. And actually, do you want to go into what happens when the court isn't balanced? Well, we'll be talking about that later on. But basically what happens is um, you'll get stalemates. Especially when you have a court like we have right mm -hmm. now. Um, before Scalia died, it was perfectly balanced. We had four conservative justices. That was the conservative block, and four liberal judges, um, justices. So that was the liberal. That was the liberal block. And then there was King Kennedy in the middle, who's very much a moderate and always ends up swaying the court's decision one way or another. Um, but now with Scalia gone, there are three conservative. There's King Kennedy, and there's four um, liberal justices. So now, if you have a case where King Kennedy is going to side on the um, side of the conservatives, you're going to have a perfect split, a 4-4 decision, which, in that type of stalemate, will just affirm whatever the lower court's decision is. The important thing about that, actually, is that the lower court's opinion will get affirmed, but it only applies to that circuit. So if the Fifth Circuit has a ruling that it only applies to people in that circuit. It wouldn't apply to anyone in the Ninth Circuit. So that's how we get really dangerous circuit splits. That's how we get confusion within the law. Um, and the whole point uh, of the Supreme Court is to create uniformity among laws. Right. So, I mean, it, so that's, like, really the major issue to me is that... And be the final arbiter yeah. is really what it's about. The Supreme Court, you appeal to the Supreme Court so that, that the case has some finality. And it's supposed to be the final decision. Mm -hmm. And in these situations, inevitably, cases are going to get re-argued. Mm -hmm. That's just what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I also just want to say, like... With the perfect balance of the court, it was actually a really great generation that we had on the court. Um, I think one of the best we ever had. I agree. Because it created such fierce arguments. Mm -hmm. But when there's rhetoric on either side, that's how you get the most legally sound and lasting opinions. Yep. Yeah. And even the dissents are <coughs> are crucial. Like, this, the generation of the Supreme Court that we had up until this point with the perfect split and King Kennedy in the middle, has produced a lot of great dissents, a lot of great opinions, and it's really well argued on both sides. So when future cases appear that are trying to argue similar 
they have reasonings for both ways. So they're able to use the justices' arguments to support further. And for those of you who don't know what a dissent is, it means a judge who voted um, but he lost will then go and write a legal argument for why he disagrees mm-hmm. and about why like that that this ruling might not apply in a different context. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we actually read a lot of dissents from this generation in mm-hmm. law school because like they were such a good dissents. They were such good legal analysis. Right. Particularly Scalia, though, who would write like 70 page dissents. <laughs> that really sucked. Yeah. It's like you'd get through this case in law school and be like, yeah, read this like 90 page like case. And it's like, and then go read the dissent. And yeah, at that point in my life, I didn't. Love Scalia fondly. He was very long-winded, but he was thorough. He was And that was incredibly important. Oh, we all became better lawyers, I suppose. (laughs) Oh, man, my con law teacher would, like, love it if he heard me say that. Aw, that's great. Because he made me me read so much. So, anyway, back to, like, where we are on the case. Um, What's happening? Where is it going? With Merrick Garland. With Merrick Garland. (laughs) Nothing is happening. Under Article 2 of the Constitution, the president nominates... um, Somebody, and with advice and consent of the Senate, he is able to confirm. Really, though, the founders were kind of vague about what advice and consent means. And there's probably a reason for that. Um, They kind of figured that it would happen naturally, what advice and consent meant, Mm -hmm. and that traditions would form, and they have. What's formed is that there is, um, first the president nominates... Then it goes to the Senate Judiciary Committee, Mm -hmm. which does kind of a pre-vetting. It's a very easy um, hurdle to jump over generally. And then it goes to the Senate floor for a full hearing. And when you hear about, like, crazy um, arguments about confirmations or when things get really heated, that generally happens on the Senate floor. Um, Mm -hmm. That's where they grill it hard because they should. Because it's Supreme Court nominations. um, They're They're appointed for life, so it's really important. Like, you should know exactly who you're nominating. Mm -hmm. It's a very big responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, But in this case... Merrick Garland has literally not even gotten to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Which is a shame, because it would be nice to have a full hearing on him and find out how he actually feels on a lot of these more controversial topics. Like, what does he believe? Yeah. You don't even know. You don't know. How so are you nice even against him? Because you don't even know what he believes. Yeah. He's an enigma. <laughs> okay, anyway. Alright. <coughs> Excuse me, by the way. I have a cold. Y'all have to forgive me during this podcast. Okay, so anyway, um, so it's been over 200 days since Obama nominated him. Isn't that a record? Yeah, that is actually a record. It's as long as any Supreme Court justice has been without even a confirmation. Mm-hmm. And the average is only 67 days. Um, from the time that the president nominates to the time they are either confirmed or denied, 67-day mm-hmm. period. The White House, actually, I found this really interesting on their website, has, like, a toll of running a clock about how long Garland has been um, <laughs> waiting, and it has, like, comparisons, like, how long other justices has waited, and, I mean, his time is ridiculous. Mm. Um, and you might be wondering, historically, how weird it is. It's it's really weird. It's really, really weird. Um, six justices, like I mentioned earlier, have been confirmed in election years. Um, Merrick Garland is over 200 days now. In history... No one has gone above 125 days. So, I mean, it's just, this is a crazy thing that's happening. It's essentially unprecedented. Mm. So, you might be wondering, what happens now? I am wondering that. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because, I mean, like, realistically, um, what can Obama do? 
there's been some arguments about this. Some people have suggested a recess appointment, which mm-hmm. is a whole nother can of worms in itself. That's like a whole different podcast. Right, right, right. <laughs> Because, I mean, like, there have been a couple opinions on it. Basically, Obama has already gotten in trouble for, like, exceeding his power during recess appointments. But Because he's just really... Obama's really only required just to get the advice and consent of the Senate. What does that even mean? Can he do it without Senate's confirmation? I mean, he could just be like, well, Hatch told me to nominate this guy, and I did. I took his advice. (laughs) (laughs) You should consent to it. I mean, yeah, so, but historically, traditionally, there's been a confirmation hearing, which... I think that we should stand with, but what do you do if the Senate doesn't do its job? Mm-hmm. Because this creates a whole nother issue is, well, what if, can't, like, senators in the future, if they don't like somebody who the president um, nominates, couldn't they just deny the next person mm-hmm. and the next person? Mm-hmm. What if Hillary's elected president and the Senate just blocks every single person that they nominate to every single position? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. just have to be the Supreme Court. There are a lot of appointments. Right. And so, I mean, like, that's actually where the most dangerous precedent comes in, is that this is unheard of. The Senate can essentially just keep doing this for anyone who they don't like, and Mm -hmm. there's no real guidance for it. What I think, and this is radical, um, all my conservative friends are going to hate me for saying this, (laughs) but I think Obama should just put him on the court. Mm. Like, and as crazy as that sounds, and yes, that would go to the Supreme Court. Somebody would challenge it. It would go to the Supreme Court and it would be overturned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I don't say that as in, like, I don't think that president should just be able to appoint anyone they want. I say that because I want guidance on this. I think a more reasonable um, and realistic sort of um, standard, let's say, um, would be to put in place a limit for, these for this pre-vetting process and just state... It can't last longer than 30 days or 60 days or 100 days. I would even go 90 days. Yeah, I think 90 days is very reasonable. I think 90 days before it, like, goes to a confirmation, unless, like, there's, like, some kind of crazy emergency. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. unless we go to war or there's, like, something else that would prevent the Senate from reasonably voting in that time. Right. But I think it, I I don't think that it should just be like, well, we don't feel like it, so we're not going to do it. Well, realistically, what's happening right now is the Senate is waiting for the election. Yeah. I think that's pretty clearly what's happening right now. And funny you should mention that, actually, because (laughs) his name is so appropriate for this section. Like, it's almost like I made this up, but I didn't. Senator Flake. Oh, what a great name. His name is Flake. Like, you can't ask for a better (laughs) name. Um, Senator Flake actually said that if Hillary gets elected, the Senate should go ahead and, like, quickly, quickly, um, confirm Merrick Garland, which I find hilarious because their whole point this entire time was they can't nominate somebody who the American people haven't had a voice in electing unless that voice is somebody that they don't like. Yeah, exactly. In which case... So if the American voice chooses Hillary, then they shouldn't get a voice. Then suddenly that ham sandwich is looking more like a steak. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Then it, you know, like, then it starts like, I don't know, because he is a lot more moderate than anyone Hillary's going to choose. That's actually been another issue is a couple people have asked, like, 
well, like, would Hillary ever stick with somebody like Merrick Garland? I don't think so. No. She's going to have a lot of liberal momentum, like, coming into the White House. I mean... And she'll have just be starting out her presidency, so she has all the time in the world to get anyone she wants appointed. She has four years. Yeah. You know, maybe eight, you know. Maybe eight. Yeah, it depends. Oh, God, I don't want to relive this election. Yeah. This has been such a bad election. So, I mean, like, she has, like, all this time. She can appoint whoever she wants. She's not going to go with someone moderate. Mm. I think she's actually more likely to go with Sharice Srinivasan. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I more say that because I've met him, and I like Sharice Srinivasan, so I really want him to be on the court so I can be like, I know that man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so, um... that's actually my spiel about Merrick Garland. I think this is mostly, though, just a testament to how important it is to have a full court. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. And that leads us into our next segment, which is what happens when there is a split. What happens when there's a split? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Can you think of an example of a case, maybe? Oh, I think I might. (laughs) So DAPA, um, which is the case that most recently, um, well, not most recently, but a case that went was decided by the Supreme Court in June of this year was how to split court, which means the Fifth Circuit, which decided the case, their decision was affirmed. Um, and this is kind of a big deal for several reasons. First of all, what is DAPA? DAPA stands for the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents. Um, So that's a mouthful, but DAPA is basically the big brother, or parent, if you will, to DACA. So let me start by explaining what DACA was. DACA was part of an executive um, action that Obama passed down in 2012. And for those of you who are wondering what an executive order is, it's actually a legally binding order by the president, and it generally only applies to um, agencies or other... um, uh, other things within the executive branch. Mm-hmm. So if Obama like orders something on DHS because DHS is an executive agency, they have to follow his um, law. Yes. Okay. DHS, by the way, is Department of Homeland Security. For those of you that are not used to acronyms and don't live in DC, I know because we live in DC, which is like the land of acronyms, <laughs> and it's also funny because DC itself is an acronym. Yeah. So yeah, our we're life, surrounded by them. Our life is just one giant alphabet soup. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, back um, to <laughs> so. DACA, which stands for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, without going into too much technical legalese, um, it applies to children of undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. while he was under the age of 16 um, and has continuously resided in the U.S. for at least five years. Um, There's a couple of other... um, there's a couple of other requirements for it. For instance, you have to be under the age of 30 if you're applying for it, um, and a couple other things. But basically, it's for children of undocumented immigrants who have lived in the U.S. for five years. Um, so these, through DACA, they're able to stay at their deportation for two years, and during that two years, they're able to get a legal work authorization. So they're illegally allowed to work and stay in the U.S. for two years. Um, This might not seem that significant. What's the big deal? It's only two years. Mm -hmm. However, this is incredibly significant because if if these these children are able to get legal work statuses and legal basic legal temporary statuses in the United States, they're able to then get a more, apply for more permanent legal status. Um, They're also able, after two years, they're also able to reapply 
Um, and just practically, immigration is really complicated. Yeah. And so if you have extra time, it's extra time for you to sift through the system. It's extra time to find a better lawyer. It's, mm-hmm. you know, Get a work visa. Like, if you've already got legal work authorization, you are able to find a job. That job can then help you get a work visa to stay more permanently. Or, you know, like, it, it, there, there's a lot of things that you can do with those two years mm-hmm. that you might not be able to do with the stay of something else. Um, yeah. So as you can imagine, this was highly, highly controversial when it first came out. Um Republicans highly criticized this bill because they said it infringed on the lawmaking prerogative um, that's given to Congress, exclusively to Congress, and it's illegal because it's not an act of prosecutorial discretion, but rather an abuse of its discretion. So um, the way that the Department of Homeland Security was able to pass this down is they basically used it as an exercise of their prosecutorial discretion saying that their officers, the ICE officers, which stands for... Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Right. Which, by the way, is the enforcement branch of uh, the immigration section of Homeland Security. And so they're the people who generally are going to initiate and um, uh, the deportation proceedings. Right. So DACA is basically <coughs> the DHS secretary, this is Napolitano, this is the one who um, passed down this order, is saying, use your prosecutorial discretion to stay the de- deportation, meaning stop it. It wasn't um, Jay Johnson? No, no. The, he came later. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Mm. Okay. Um, so to stop the deportation hearing for people that met the criteria under DACA, met the requirements, and applied for um, this. Another reason why this was super controversial is Obama actually um, executed this order in response to the DREAM Act, mm-hmm. which was an act that was very similar to this, that went to Congress, and Congress sh- shut it down. They didn't pass this bill. I actually, like, think that this was, like, one of Congress' biggest, like, fuck-ups mm. of, like, recent times. Because, I mean, it was something that everyone was trying to get behind. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of rare with immigration especially. But, I mean, like, they were kids, and it's something, like... A lot of them came over when they were babies. Mm -hmm. They didn't even speak, like, the language of the country of their parents. Like, Mm -hmm. they were American in every sense of the word, and a lot of people were able to get behind that in a way that other immigration bills, they weren't. Right. And so the fact that they couldn't pass even this, which seemed a very uncontroversial bill for Congress to pass, it's a very controversial executive order, but Mm -hmm. not a controversial bill, Mm -hmm. was, like, one of those moments that I look back on and just, like, facepalm. It's very frustrating. Right, right, right. It's... Yes, it is very frustrating. Um, So Obama did this in response to that, which, as you can imagine, that pissed a lot of people off because a lot of people kind of saw this as Obama, you know, overstepping his bounds and kind of taking the legislative branch into his own hands and they wouldn't enact the act he wanted, so he's going to just do it anyways. The other thing is this applied, DACA actually applied to about one over 1.7 million immigrants. That's a lot, but considering we have between 5 and 6 million immigrants, um, undocumented immigrants in this country, that's actually not that big of a deal. Anyways, so DAPA, which applies to the parents of the children who have been able to stay their deportation through DACA, applies now to between 3 and 5 million undocumented immigrants. That is a huge number. That's almost Mm -hmm. all-encompassing. So that is extremely significant. Um, In order to be eligible under DACA, you must be the parent of a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident, which now a lot of these children 
through DACA were able to get a permanent status, mm-hmm. um, have continuously lived in the U.S. since 2010. So before, it was a longer period of time that they had to live in the U.S., and now this is a shorter period of time. Um, and then there's a couple of other requirements, but basically it's for the parents of all these children, which is a lot of people, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, and it would la- allow them to stay their deportation for three years as opposed to two with DACA and would allow them to get legal work authorizations. So do you think this is overreaching? Yes. Okay. But let me tell you what the court found okay. and their reasons for it, okay. and then I'll go into why I think the court may have decided correctly, which I do think they decided correctly, actually, which is crazy, coming from Texas. I know. Texas is, is like the crazy circuit. Yes. They are batshit crazy. First of all, <laughs> this case was called Texas versus the United States. This case is really actually pretty interesting considering, okay, everyone... I mean, the fact that Texas sued the federal government isn't really... I mean, everyone would have expected that. I'm from Texas, by the way, but it's the craziest effing circuit. It's yeah. so insane. Mm. Oh, man. Okay. Every single crazy, like, decision that comes out that people are like, was that actually law? It's almost always from Texas. hmm mm-hmm. Just saying. Anyway, so this case. <laughs> so this case went to the Texas District Court, and <laughs> it was Texas joined by 25 other states... So, half of America has a problem with DAPA, and they sued, Texas and all these other states sued um, the federal government and DHS and Obama um, because of DAPA, basically saying that DAPA is unconstitutional and that the executive branch had no authority to issue this type of action affecting this many people. Um, So, as you can imagine, the district judge in this case was Hannon, Andrew Hannon, and they um, were suing for a preliminary injunction, which means it would stop DAPA from being implemented any further until a more permanent injunction could be And a um, permanent enacted. injunction generally comes with a full hearing, right? A yes, full trial. Yeah. A full trial. Okay. So this is a preliminary. So this is until they can get the full trial and they can get a permanent injunction. Um, so Texas and 25 other states sued on this. And as you can imagine, this is a Texas court, so it's going to be a very conservative, um, a conservative court, and they granted the injunction. The interesting part of this is they didn't just grant an injunction for this district court, this Texas district court Mm -hmm. did not just grant an injunction in joining DAPA in, you know, the district in which the judge had jurisdiction over, Mm -hmm. or even over all of Texas, which still would have been pretty... Um, would have been overstepping his jurisdictional bounds, mm-hmm. or even the jurisdiction that the Fifth Circuit had. Mm-hmm. Instead, he granted a nationwide injunction. Say this district court judge is now stating that DAPA is enjoined from being implemented anywhere in America. That actually strikes me as unconstitutional. That. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty that unheard really of. crazy, yeah. I'm not really sure where he gets the authority to do that. Yeah, because he's only, like... It's just a he district... He has authority judge. over his over district. Over his district. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. But whatever. it's crazy. So we granted this. Also, and, like, for the record, when something's, like, not in your district or not in your circuit, depending on where you are, you mm-hmm. only have to... Ha- unless it comes from the Supreme Court, 
you only have to treat that precedent as, like, a suggestion. Right. It's not binding on you. It's not You binding. don't have to follow the law. It's only just like, well, this court ruled this way, so we could listen to them or we could not, depending on how we're feeling that day. Which is, again, funny because once this decision came down, the DHS, instead of being like, all right, well, I guess we won't, you know, exercise DAPA in your district mm-hmm. or even in Texas, mm-hmm. um, they said... I mean, they were unhappy about it, but they stopped. They stopped DAPA nationwide when the district court judge ruled on this. And they even tried to, um, they tried to reason with the district court judge. They tried to reason with the Fifth Circuit Mm -hmm. and asked them to allow um, DAPA to continue through the appeals process. And the Fifth Circuit turned that down. Everyone turned that down. So DAPA's been on hold since this first judgment came down. I would imagine probably why they're doing that is because they knew that if this court um, made this... I think they wanted it to go to the Supreme Court, and I think they wanted the Supreme Court to rule it a certain way. Mm. Because if not, then every district court who disagreed, which is a lot, like Mm -hmm. you said, half, would just pass similar precedents. Yeah. So it would essentially make it... Um, like, it would render it useless right. if it didn't go to the Supreme Court and get affirmed. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's why I think they probably did that. That's actually pretty interesting, mm-hmm. and that could actually be why, yeah. especially considering from the beginning, everyone kind of knew this case was going to be a big deal. When Texas gets 25 other states mm-hmm. to jump on as plaintiffs mm-hmm. suing the federal government, it's not something to be taken lightly. That's and, a big deal. Well, and I mean, and this is just kind of the courts at work. This is another tool. This mm-hmm. is a way that we get laws. This is a way that we get traditions. It's right. like it, it's like two agencies battling it out, checks and balances. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you use um, cases like this to create policy. Yeah, Whenever absolutely. policymakers don't do it. So I, I think that actually this was DHS trying to create a policy. Yeah, okay. I agree. Um, so why did the courts, why did Judge Hannon um, grant this preliminary injunction? First of all, they had to rule on the issue of standing. He decided that they had standing. Um, they had to rule on the issue of whether the DHS has the discretion to institute a program as big as DAPA. They decided that they didn't, um, and they they had to they had to look at whether DAPA was even constitutional, whether it comports with existing law, and was legally adopted. And the district court found that it wasn't. Which is actually really interesting because this is a lot different. Keep in mind that DACA, so the children version of this, Mm -hmm. is not at issue here. DACA will continue on regardless. And it has. Regardless of what happens in this case, that is not on trial. That is not at issue. However, DAPA, it's interesting because part of the um, laws that we have in place, one of the big ones that um, the court relies on, both the district court and the Fifth Circuit relies on, is the Immigration and Nationality Act. And that's our current act that we have in place. That's passed by Congress to kind of determine, you know, the way that undocumented immigrants should be treated, um, how long they should be allowed to stay, um, what to do, how the deportation process should basically work, um, you know, and what the procedure is to get the legal documentation to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Immigration and Nationality Act actually has a lot of different um, clauses and a lot of different sections that were specifically meant to keep parents and adults out um, and to make the deportation process a lot more difficult. Um, one of the, the sections I was reading about today is if... Um, 
if someone who was living in America and doesn't have the proper the legal documentation to be here leaves the country, they're not allowed back in for 10 years. Mm-hmm. 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's a significant amount of time. Um, and it's... There's a lot of other clauses like that in the, it's called the INA for short, the Immigration and Nationality Act, that are specifically, that have been, that were specifically put in place to apply to adults. Um, And more specifically, parents. So one such clause in the INA um, was that Congress has required that children um, be at least 21 years of age if they wish to sponsor their parents. Um, so that's a big one, and this obviously takes away that requirement because now the children that qualify under DACA can be less than 16 years of age. So the executive action will now, it, it makes it before you had to be 21, now you don't have to be 21 right, to get right. your parents in. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of other things um, that the INA has done and other immigration acts have done, like making, creating, um, restricting access to lawful employment. Um, for one, and this takes away all of that, um, and obviously grants temporary legal status and allows, um, you know, three-year work authorization. So, um, that was a big deal, and the district court kind of looked at that and decided, um, that DAPA, DAPA, sorry, is unconstitutional because it, um, you know, goes directly against congressional, um, Congressional authorization and kind of like the legislative intent of these immigration acts. Um, So in the end, the district court found that this was unconstitutional because the president overstepped his bounds. um, And primarily the take care clause, which states that um, the president takes care that the laws of the land should be faithfully executed and the district court was basically saying, you didn't do that because instead of faithfully executing the laws of the land, mm-hmm. you used your executive authority to, to contradict the laws of the land, to contradict the laws that Congress has put in place. Um, so then this, of course, went up to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit affirmed the decision of the district court. So the injunction is still in place. And then it went up to the Supreme Court, and the opinion... Um, was issued on in June of this year. It was June 25th, I think. Um, anyways, and the Supreme Court was tied. King Kennedy um, sided with the conservative bloc, so it was a 4-4 split. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it was split, the decision of the Fifth Circuit was affirmed. Which is a little bit complicated because the Fifth Circuit kind of self-proclaim that they are a nationwide authority mm-hmm. but nobody really knows because generally like we were saying earlier this decision would only apply to the precedent mm-hmm. or not the precedent this decision would only apply to that circuit the people within that circuit but this one is different which is i'm sure where you're going because mm-hmm. the district court granted a nationwide injunction so while normally this law would only, whatever the Fifth Circuit um, determined and whatever the Supreme Court affirmed by default would only apply to the Fifth Circuit, this one applies nationwide. Which, and now DAPA is, has a preliminary injunction against it nationwide and is enjoined from acting. I'm going to assume that this is a legal gray area, but I don't think they have authority to do that. It is a legal gray area, and a lot of people are up in arms about it. In fact, um, I was telling you this earlier, but there's a 
case that just went to the District Court of New York, mm-hmm. um, one of these parents, one of these people that qualify under the under DAPA, was in the process of getting his deportation stayed for three years, and now all that is going away, and he's having to go through the deportation process right now. So he's suing in the um, in New York District Court, saying that this injunction should only apply to the Fifth Circuit and shouldn't apply to him up there in New York. Well, I'm just saying that this takes away the nature of the independency of the circuit courts if Mm -hmm. one court can decide the fate of another. Yeah. Then they could just have that any law that they want. Like, if I was a circuit court judge and I would say, oh, yeah, by the way, this applies nationwide. I think that's a dangerous precedent. I think it is, too. And to to me, it's like, yeah, just because the Supreme Court affirmed this, or because they tied on it, Mm -hmm. and so technically it's affirmed just because they couldn't make a decision, which, by the way, also means we don't get to read their opinions, right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. which is also dangerous because we don't see, like, why they decided what they did, and there's nothing for the lower courts to rely on. So right now all we have is the Fifth Circuit opinion, um, which, I mean, it's it's um, an interesting opinion, yeah, but the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on their takes, which obviously they can't because they're split. And that's another reason why we need nine people mm-hmm. on the court. It's another reason because we're going to have these circuit splits, we're going to have... Um, you know, it's not fair that somebody in the Fifth Circuit might get deported and somebody in the Ninth Circuit won't. Right. You know, like, there should be, like, the Constitution should, like, be the same throughout the land. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Yeah. No one asked me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So this is actually a really interesting case, and this is a really interesting example of why Merrick Garland being stuck in this kind of purgatory where he's not being granted a hearing, not being granted, not being denied either. I mean, let's be honest, he's, the the Congress could very easily just have the hearing and then deny him and not confirm him. I mean, that makes him look bad, though, because then it's like, if he does come out as, like, a really rational, Mm -hmm. moderate person, then it's going to show just kind of, like, how irrational they're being, and they don't want to put that on display. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway... So, do, I, I'm curious, do you think this case is an overreach of executive power? I do, actually. I actually think that the Fifth Circuit, as radical as they are, um, ruled correctly. I That's do think interesting, that. actually, coming from you. It is interesting coming from <laughs> me. I am very pro-immigration. However, mm-hmm. this large of an executive action um, affects so many people. I just told you it affects between three and five million undocumented immigrants, and the executive branch has now handed down this order that directly contradicts the legislative intent of the um, INA, of an act that Congress passed, and it's not Obama's, Obama's job is to faithfully execute the laws of the land, and he is choosing not to do that, and I don't think it is his job or his right to pick and choose the laws that he wants to follow based on his own political agenda. See, and I don't know, because... I think that's where me and you disagree, because where it's like, is it his right? Is it his job? What do you do when, like, Congress isn't governing? And I think what part of what you do is you kind of, like, put out an order that you think needs to happen, and then it's the Supreme Court's job to, if it's unconstitutional, they should strike it down and say why. If it is, and they should strike it, if it is constitutional, they should uphold it and say why. Mm-hmm. That's why we need this guidance. And and so, I don't know, it does make me nervous. I'm very pro-immigration. I don't really like an overreach of any of the branches. Mm-hmm. That, um, 
it, you know, it, there's something about that because it's great when it's a something that you want. Exactly. Because I want this to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to say, like, yeah, this was a great order. Right. But the issue is, like, if somebody, I don't know, like, hypothetically, if, let's say, a crazy person was running for president right now who had really radical ideas about immigration. I don't know who you could be talking about. I I mean, this just sets a really dangerous precedent. Exactly. If somebody does get into power, then they can just kind of pass whatever they want. I think it is extremely dangerous. And I want to go back to one thing you said, because this has actually been brought up a lot, especially with DACA and DAPA. Mm -hmm. It's what, what happens if Congress drags their feet and refuses to pass legislation that could actually reform the immigration system, which, you know, is broken. That is an interesting point, and I do agree that something needs to be done in that situation. However, we do have immigration acts in place. You know, Congress has enacted the Immigration and Nationality Act. They have several acts that they have enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, yes, I do believe that they should enact a new act, something mm-hmm. that actually addresses the problems that we have in this country. I don't really think it's Obama's place to say, I don't like the act that you do have in place, and now I'm going to refuse to enforce it. Because that's really what he's doing. He's not, he's, he's changing, yes, he's changing the law, but he's doing it based on, not because Congress is dragging their feet, it's because what they enacted isn't good enough for him. Does it directly contradict what they have already enacted? Um, not directly, but... Well, I would say yes, actually. I would say yes, it does. It does directly. Because it is the DHS's job to, um, you know, deport undocumented immigrants and to sit here and say, no, I don't want you to do that anymore. And I want you to now give them legal status, even though we have laws in place saying um, what the deportation process should be. Yes, I I do think it's a contradiction. I think this is one of those really frustrating things that... It comes with immigration reform because mm-hmm. it's so broken. And I think both sides want changes. Yeah. Because no one's happy. You know, it's like we're just wasting money with, like, this huge bureaucracy and, like, all these, like, these convoluted laws that don't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And just they're very expensive to uphold. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is one of those frustrating things that it is Congress's job to act. Right. Ideally, what I would have liked is for this to have passed within Congress. Yeah, the Dream Act would have been nice. But at the same time, like beyond my legal theory like I'm also a human and it's like these are also people yeah and if Congress doesn't act if I was in Obama's position I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing right as as a lawyer I'm like yeah that's scary mm-hmm. I you know because it does set it dangerous precedents mm-hmm. as a person I'm like I don't know if I could just let I it, I don't know if I wouldn't have done the same thing yeah and you know that's an that's an important point too because Obama's one of one of Obama's biggest platforms mm-hmm. was immigration reform. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're right. What happens when Congress isn't, you know, it's also what a lot of people would consider one of his I don't want to say failures. Mm-hmm. Actually, I could say failures. I think it's and, probably that and gun control are mm-hmm. one of his biggest failures. I think he would probably consider of his administration he was not able to pass widespread reform. Right. And so, I, and, I mean, he did a lot of great things during his administration, arguably. Like, a couple of people in Texas might disagree with me on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wasn't able to pass comprehension um, immigration reform. I actually more blame Congress for that. I think it's very polarized, very frustrating Congress, as we have seen in several examples, even mm-hmm. just today. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and you, you're absolutely right. Um, 
the biggest issue I have is, you're right, what happens if Trump comes into office? Mm -hmm. And you're sitting here saying these immigration reforms, DAPA and DACA, are good ideas. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when we get a crazy person that comes into the office, Mm -hmm. and they don't have good ideas? Mm -hmm. And they're able to single-handedly pick and choose which laws they choose to enforce. That's when it becomes scary. That is when it becomes scary. Another scary thought, though, is what if Hillary is elected and then, like, Congress just remains as polarized and then, like, there are real people suffering from it. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, like, legitimate consequences to... I don't know. Either way, I think we're both saying the same thing as, like, Mm -hmm. this is not an ideal situation. Yeah. But I think we have to trust the... I think we have to trust each branch to do their job. I know that's a scary <laughs> thought because they really never do. Well, um, I mean, like... But separation powers... That's if, another reason each branch might do its job if it was capable of doing it, such as if the judiciary had the full number of exactly. justices. I agree. Then it would be able to do its job. Then mm-hmm. it would be able to bring down an opinion, bring some function. uniformity, mm-hmm. because it, it really does affect people. It is affecting people's lives. Yeah. Anyway. So... So let's stop us. <laughs> that's that's fine, Charles. Um, I'd like to end, actually, like this podcast by talking about a really fun piece of information that came out within the past couple weeks. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's over 80 years old. Bless her heart. I know. I love her so much. <laughs> she she really is, like, my favorite person. I've joked about being in love with her so many times that I don't even know what's real anymore. <laughs> uh, but it came out, actually, that she can do 20 push-ups. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I don't think I can do 20 push-ups. Can I, you? I actually tried. Um, <laughs> well, okay, and to be fair, just so we get all the information correctly, she says she has to take a break between sets of 10. Okay. How long a break? Are we talking like a day know. or two? I don't think she clarified, actually. <laughs> okay. I tried to find that. I don't think so. I think it's more just like... It, it, okay, so anyway, yeah, I tried to do the RBG push-up challenge. I cannot. <laughs> so I think moral of the story is Ruth Bader Ginsburg is... Is a badass. And superior to me in every way, including <laughs> physical strength. Like, yeah. She's pretty awesome. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe to our podcast. Yes. We're going to put out new episodes every week. Uh, soon, actually, or this week, the Supreme Court actually went back in session, so there are hearing cases. We're going to talk about some of those. Because that's going to be really interesting. They're still short of justice. Yeah. So we're going to have, I'm guessing we're going to have a lot more of these types of problems arising. I, I mean, unless they're able to confirm somebody else before the decisions come out this mm-hmm. summer, uh, which is possible. I don't know if it's likely. What are we going to be talking about on next week's podcast? Next week, um, we're going to talk about a couple of the cases that have been argued this week in front of the Supreme Court. Um, a couple really interesting cases doing with, um, like, race actually and like what is acceptable to say in front of a jury Mm -hmm. about race um basically it's not good but it's it's (laughs) going to be very interesting we're also going to be talking about um the bill that a bill that on friday the house approved which allows families of those killed in 9-11 the 9-11 attacks to sue saudi arabia for any role in um that it played in the terrorist attacks and I believe we're going to have our first guest star. Which I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about that, too. Yeah, It'll be fun. Okay. So look forward to that. Subscribe to our podcast. Listen to us. It only gets better from here. And you... thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>